The nickname Moonlight Sonata actually didn't come from Beethoven. It came from the poet and critic Ludwig Rellstab. It was actually named that five years after Beethoven died. Rellstab thought the first movement sounded like a vision of a boat on Lake Lucerne by Moonlight. Cheers. Cheers. Thud. That was a sad cheers. <laughs> it's it always seems it's really always sad. a sad cheers. <laughs> it's never like an exciting cheers. Yeah. Except for at the beginning of the show, because I edited all of that together. The edited cheers is good. Yes. Yes. Anyway, welcome to <laughs> For Me a Mozart. Um, I'm Asia, and I'm here with my best friend Brienne. Hi. And we are drinking to Paloma and Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. So I guess it's a dove and a moon. You'll get the reference later if you don't already know what Paloma means. Anyway, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm <laughs> I also... mean, I'm as great as I can be in 2020. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's totally fair. So, speaking of 2020 and quarantine, you were actually pretty busy during quarantine. Can you... Gotta stay busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you especially. Um, so maybe tell me about, like, two of the projects that you did over oh only two okay great um (laughs) well one thing I did those of you who don't know me which is probably all of you (laughs) hi France (laughs) um I love to cook and I really just wasn't cooking much lately or I would cook like once a week maybe twice and I just really got out of the cooking stuff so then during quarantine I was like well you know restaurants are closed all of that so we you gotta cook and I really got... If you plan on eating. If you want to eat, yeah. Um, or you could just eat frozen food and have a sad, sad life. <laughs> um, sorry if I offended anybody. <laughs> but I got back into cooking, and then I also got into baking, which I always thought I wasn't good at baking. And turns out, you can be good at anything <laughs> if you really try and believe in yourself. <laughs> Um, so I baked some bread, I baked cookies, I made banana bread, it was, oh, I made pretzels, that was exciting. Oh my gosh, yes, I remember Soft seeing those pretzels. pictures and being like, I want some, but I can't see my best friend right now. Yeah, so that was one, and then the other project I did, well, I did read a lot of books, I read 10 books during just quarantine. Yikes, <laughs> we were just talking about this actually, I'm still on my first book of 2020. And I'm I'm maybe two thirds of the way through it. I have finished 23 books and I have four books in progress. How do you read four books at the same time? I don't know. Just myself. All right. (laughs) Um, So I read a lot of books and then I also did a lot of knitting and crocheting. And yeah, that was most of my projects. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) So you're back at work and you told me today that it's been four weeks since you've been back at work. So almost, I mean, quarantine was six weeks. And so I've had four weeks back at work, which is insane. I thought it, I thought you went back to work like two weeks ago. That's how it feels. Like it doesn't feel like we've been back for four weeks. So, yeah. So how's, how's the adjustment back into the workforce? And actually, we didn't talk about this, so maybe say what your job is. Oh, yeah. I work. I work at a vision clinic. Um, so part of going back, um, we were able to go back with, um, in Minnesota, we are rolling things out kind of in waves, and we were part of kind of the, not the very first wave, um, but like 
then they said any for non-essential procedures and other medical providers can go back to work, which includes um, your eye doctor or your dentist. So those kinds of businesses started opening back up. Um, they had to have a preparedness plan and have a meeting with everybody to explain the plan. Um, they had to install plexiglass shields and... Um, we have a limit on the amount of people we can have in the store. Everyone has to wear a mask. We have a whole bunch of protocol we have to follow as far as disinfecting and talking to everybody before they come in, asking them if they've had any symptoms. Um, so it's definitely adjusting to a new normal, which I think is how a lot of people have kind of described um, our way of life now. So it's different. Um, there are things I like about it. There are things I don't like about it, but it it's just, it is what it is. Do you miss being in quarantine and being able to just do your own thing? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I do. I do. I think towards the end of the six weeks, I was definitely getting to a point where I was like, okay, like, what else do I do now? <laughs> I mean, Asia, I started running during quarantine. I know. That was so funny. <laughs> if you know me, I hate running. <laughs> I thought that was cool. But yeah. I have always said, if you see me running, you should turn around and start running too, because I'm running from something. <laughs> and you were running from quarantine? I mean, it was some, It was getting out of the house, getting mm-hmm. some fresh air, just something to do to pass some time, and it was exercise that, you know, also got you out of the house a little bit, so... Yeah, I think, actually, that's something that a lot of people are missing right now, is mm-hmm. just going outside. And I remember when the weather finally started getting nicer here in Minnesota... I saw way more people outside oh, yeah. than I have in the past. Huge which, crowds of people, which actually wasn't really a good thing, but... Um. Well, <laughs> yeah, but I, I didn't see crowds. I saw, like, you know, families walking mm-hmm. together. And I think it's so, so, so important, especially here in Minnesota, when we only get, like, four oh, days yeah. that are nice, to really appreciate <laughs> them. Yeah, take advantage of them, for And sure. also getting back to nature. That's something that I got more into last mm-hmm. summer. It's so good for your mental health. True that. Yeah. So yeah, I do. I miss having maybe slightly more free time, maybe not getting up super early all the time. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think I was nearing the end of my rope of activities and things I can do at home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad I didn't mention this yet, but this is my first in-person podcast of season two, which (laughs) is so exciting. It's good to see you face to face. I know. We haven't seen each other since... Well, March was when coronavirus happened. Yeah, so the I'm last assuming I saw you at some point in March, but the last big group gathering I did was Miss Minnesota's Outstanding Teen, which I think was oh, March fourteenth, right. or maybe it was March seventh. So it might have actually been earlier. Yeah, than, than was... that that we saw each other because that was like a whole. I know thing. I was because I was wondering like, did we see each other in March right before it started happening? I don't think, and we did I don't get know. Together. So yeah, it's it, crazy. It's been a while. It's probably possibly the longest we've gone. Well, no, you were in Louisiana for a long time. That's true. But yeah, it's it's actually been pretty fun trying to figure out like how to do um, game nights and yeah. stuff because we've been able to include Steven. I know. Uh, that's one thing I love is that people started doing like the Zoom game nights or just Zoom happy hours with friends because you don't really think about your friends that are not close to you physically so you but I hope that becomes part of the new normal is just doing more of that and normalizing Mm -hmm. the online hangouts because 
I think that it benefits a lot of people and helps you stay connected with maybe different groups of people if you have college friends from other areas or other places or you've just kind of scattered over the time so yeah and it's been really nice because I mean Yumi and Steven keep in contact through a group chat like Mm -hmm. almost all day every day yeah but it's nice to like so see to, each other's faces. Yeah. And, yeah. Hear each other's Talk. voices. <laughs> Play some games. Speak, yes. Yeah. And yeah, it's kind of cool. You can, you can have your drinks and you aren't like gathered at a bar, so you don't have to worry about driving or how are we, how are we going to get there? Not that we ever go to bars. <laughs> well, we don't, but like if people do, you don't have to always be thinking about it. Or yeah, even if you're you just stumble into even your if bedroom. you're at a friend's house, like, yeah, usually people are then like, okay, well, or their partner is like, well, I will drive or I will or you'll drive this time. And mm-hmm. when you're just all home, you don't have to worry about it. You can drink as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, within reason, because bad things can still happen at home. They can, <laughs> but they're less detrimental, maybe than a car accident. Yeah, yeah. On that happy note, (laughs) Um, so we are going to be talking about the Moonlight Sonata written by Ludwig von Beethoven. I was actually thinking this is maybe my sixth episode about Beethoven, so this maybe should have been called Pour Me a Beethoven. Pour Me a Beethoven. Or maybe I just need to like really get on the ball. Didn't we have, when we were going over names, didn't we have a couple that were Beethoven themed in the running before we decided on Pour Me a, or you decided, I guess it's your (laughs) podcast, (laughs) that I was helping. You helped a lot, yeah. There was some Beethoven names. Maybe. Like, Beethoven's a pretty common one, but... Beethoven. That's I used think. for so many other things. So. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's a piano piece, and actually not the first piano piece, because on Woo Beethoven, that episode, uh, Fear Elise was played, but... So, it's another Beethoven piano piece. Mm-hmm. But, anyway, I wanted to ask you about your piano experience because I think you Mm. talked about it a little bit when you were on before but yeah do you I didn't prep you for this (laughs) you didn't (laughs) sorry (laughs) oh I'm supposed to say things yeah Um, I I have played the piano (laughs) period end of story (laughs) um no I started playing the piano when I was pretty young I think around four or five um and then took lessons I wasn't, like, super gung-ho about it, so don't think of me as, like, a professional or anything, but (laughs) um, took lessons kind of through high school, and now I currently have my piano in my house, which is exciting because I can play it when I want to, which isn't a lot, but sorry, Mom. (laughs) It wasn't one of your quarantine projects? You know, it wasn't. Um, Maybe it should have been. I don't know. I was... (laughs) But also, my husband was working from home, so I couldn't really do things that would disrupt that. Yeah, that's true. Um, So we talked about this a little bit earlier, but have you ever played this piece? You know, I'm not, I don't remember. It feels very familiar to me. I feel like I have. I don't specifically remember it. Like, yes, I played this, but I definitely could have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I actually, I mean, I took piano lessons maybe for like a year in middle school or so. But, you know, I grew up in a very musical household, mm-hmm. so we always had a piano, and I was always very attracted to the piano, which now that I've said that out loud, sounds like a really weird thing to say. No, it doesn't. Okay, great. Um, so I've always, like, kind of goofed around on it, but I actually took class piano uh, my, was it freshman and sophomore years of college? Or maybe it was just the first year we were required to take 
two semesters. No, it was two years. It was like with our music history and music mm-hmm. theory requirements, we had to take piano. Um, and it was actually really cool because we learned this piece around the time that we were learning about things that happen in music theory mm. that appear in this piece. Ah. So it was, I don't know if the professors like did this on purpose or if it just happened to work out that way, but the, it was just really cool how feeling everything in the piano and being able to see it, which is mm-hmm. so different than like the violin where you can't, you see four strings and then there's all these notes everywhere. I don't know. Piano just makes music theory way more un- easy to understand, I think. Yeah, I really, I do really like the piano. Um, if I did play it, I it was the first movement that I played. I definitely didn't play it the second or oh, third movement. Oh, same. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had actually never listened to the other two movements. Oh, So okay. that was... Um, fun for me doing the research for this. I don't I don't remember hearing the second movement before this, but I did I definitely recognized the third movement, but there's yeah. no way I could ever play. Oh my that. gosh, yeah. <laughs> um so when I listened to it, I had heard the third movement, but I, you know, didn't think of it as coming from this. Right. So we kind of skipped over the Paloma. So let's talk about that. So this is a drink that we discovered when we were working together at a coffee shop, but we had, well, it was a coffee shop, so we had Saturday nights off, and mm-hmm. I think I didn't have to work the next Sunday, so we went out to Marvel Bar, which... Just closed down because of quarantine. I know. Oh. I was so sad to see that. It was the speakeasy under the Bachelor Farmer in, mm-hmm. was that N- North Loop, Minneapolis? It was in Minneapolis. Sounds about right. Whatever part of Wherever it was, was, it was in Minneapolis. And it was really cool. Like, it was really cool. Yeah, it was, it was very vintage themed. The door was a little hard to find. The yeah. drinks were amazing. The, uh, I just called... What is wrong with me? The bartenders were very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went there not really knowing anything. So we looked at the menu and it was just really intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, because they didn't list the ingredients. They listed the kind of tequila or the kind of gin. So you kind of had to know. Right. Yeah. And then they also used a lot of fancy liqueurs and mm-hmm. ingredients that I had never heard of before. Right. And I've been there. Well, actually I went there shortly before quarantine and the menu is a lot less intimidating having some craft having experience, bartending yeah. experience, which hopefully this podcast will make, um, what am I trying to say? Craft cocktail menus less intimidating for my listeners. Um, but anyway, yeah, Marvel Bar closed. I actually wrote <laughs> in my notes, Paloma, Marvel Bar. Sad, Sad face. face. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Paloma is a Spanish word for dove. And maybe it's just because it was so dark the time we went there. But... Um, I definitely thought it didn't look like a dove because of all the grapefruit juice. Maybe they had other ingredients in there too. But, you know, making it today, it does look a little bit more dove colored. But that's why it it gets the name is because the color resembles a dove. Oh, yeah. I definitely, when I've ordered them even at other bars, they've been more pinkish. Mm -hmm. So they, oh, they might use the bottled grapefruit juice. Oh, that's possible. That's like the ruby red grapefruit juice. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably it. <laughs> Mystery solved. <laughs> Mystery solved. Um, but anyway, ours look like dove-ish. Yeah, they're very like very, very pale blush pink. Yeah. Oh, also, okay. So there's another reason that they might be pinker at a bar. But let me just say the recipe that we used today. Um, 
And actually the ratios changed a little bit because we didn't get quite enough lime juice and quite enough grapefruit juice out of the lime and the grapefruit. Um, but the intent was to have two ounces of tequila and you had a silver tequila, mm-hmm. half ounce of cilantro simple syrup, which I've used on another episode. So I've explained how to make that. But basically you melt sugar and water together. Mm-hmm. You can do equal parts. I like mine a little lighter. So I do mm-hmm. like a quarter cup of what's it called sugar and then a whole cup of water. Um, one ounce of lime juice and two ounces of grapefruit juice. Then you shake that. And then, uh, we topped it with pamplemousse LaCroix, which is <laughs> grapefruit LaCroix. Um, the official international, international bartenders association, their official recipe is one part tequila and three parts grapefruit soda. So mm. that's another reason that it might be pinker at a bar mm. because they use grapefruit soda. Like I think we used Haritos. Uh, at the bar that I worked at, which, okay. I mean, the soda is obviously going to have a little more coloring Color. and stuff, mm-hmm. which is also why um, we had the LaCroix, but I decided to use some simple syrup because we didn't really have anything mm-hmm. sweet to put in there. And I meant to also include a uh, grapefruit crema made by Tattersall Distillery. <laughs> <laughs> distillery. Um, Tattersall is a Minnesota distillery, yeah. and I have their grapefruit crema. I have their hand sanitizer. They make hand sanitizer? They do now because oh, of quarantine. I guess. The distilleries kind of, it was them. I know it was, I think Tattersall was the main one, but then like Brother Justice and some other local distilleries kind of like hopped on. So they made, Good since them. they use, I mean, they distill alcohol. <laughs> so they um, made hand sanitizer. And because nice. we couldn't, nobody could get hand sanitizer. Yeah. And yeah. So we have hand sanitizer made by local distilleries. Cool. Um, so yeah, that would make this probably even better because I love everything by Tattersall. Not the hand sanitizer. Oh, yes, the grapefruit crema. <laughs> Do not drink your hand sanitizer. That is an official pour me a Mozart statement. Disclaimer. Do not drink it. It is poison. Um, okay. <laughs> so if you add... <laughs> that makes me think of the episode of The Office where Meredith puts hand sanitizer in her hands <laughs> and then licks it. In 10 years, I will be 10 years sober. Seven years sober. No, she. I think it's six months. Oh. <laughs> six months sober. Five months sober. <laughs> or maybe it was five years. I don't know. It doesn't you, matter. It, it, yeah. <laughs> Point made. Um, so the Paloma is a very popular drink in Mexico, and it's also known as the working man's drink. And I think it's because, you know, you just pour some tequila in, add some soda. It's kind of like a Jack and Coke, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, so it's easy to make and just kind of like a relaxing thing to have at the end of your day. Refreshing because, you know, it's way hotter in Mexico than it is here. <laughs> sure is. Um, there's another popular drink in Mexico called the Cantarito, which is very similar to the Paloma. But you add lime juice and orange juice and I think lemon juice, too. So you just get more juices in there. And I looked it up, but it didn't say what it means, so I don't know. But anyway, this drink is nice and refreshing. It is. It's a very good summery drink. It's a good alternative to, like, a margarita. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just nice and light. I love grapefruit juice. I've always loved grapefruit. So yeah. it gives you a nice, kind of a different citrusy flavor than just a margarita with lime. Right. And I love margaritas, but you know, sometimes you're just 
sometimes you just want something a little bit different. Yeah. And it's you not just had too, too many margaritas. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes Hopefully not life, one night. <laughs> you just have too many margaritas and you need something different. So you have a Paloma. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Um, that's why the the dove, the white bird, matches with the moon. So you can, I think doves are actually daytime birds, but you can imagine a dove flying in front of the moon. Yeah, they're, I mean, the only nighttime birds are really owls, I think. So. Yeah. Um, okay. But there are morning doves, which are a little bit of like a pinky color. And they are like, well, I don't know when they're out, but in the evenings I would always hear them. Paloma de la mañana. Yeah. Actually, I think it's morning, M-O-U-R. It's, yeah, like morning, like sad, because they have a call that sounds like they're in mourning. Uh, Palomas son tristes. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> so the Moonlight Sonata. Um, you can hear more about Beethoven's life. Oh, unless you had something else to say about the Paloma, the drink. I like Palomas. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, <laughs> so on to the music. So, um, you can hear more about Beethoven and his life and history in season one, episode three with our friend Steven, where we talk about Beethoven's fifth symphony. It's very famous. (laughs) (laughs) It's very famous. You've probably heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about this piece than I will about Beethoven. And, um, I looked at some, oh, I should mention most of the info all of the information i got about the paloma comes from wikipedia thank you wikipedia um you know what i hate that teachers when we were in school were like wikipedia is not a valid source it's not reputable i think when we were in school wikipedia wasn't a valid source because it was so new i think reddit is kind of like that now like you can get a lot of good information on reddit but you need to like it's a good starting point yes it is. But I also didn't cite Wikipedia. I would go down to the sources right. and, like, go to those actual places. But, like... Oh, so you were using it right. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but they would see us, like, on Wikipedia in the library and, oh, like, get that. snarky about it. And mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, I'm just reading to get, like, a general knowledge. And then I will click these little numbers. General knowledge. That are the citations. And I will go down to the bottom and I will click on those websites that are, like, a because they would be like, it has to be a .edu or a .gov or I don't accept it. <laughs> and, yeah, it's true. Wikipedia is great for, like, you if you know nothing about a topic, you can't just start picking things. Like, you like how do you even like know where to summary. go? You don't. Yeah. Like, okay, let me just pull up, like, a random college website and see if they've written anything about it. About tequila? Yeah, who yeah, knows? D- <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway... Um, Back to Beethoven. Back to Beethoven. Um, my sources for this piece come from Stephen Osborne, who wrote program, program notes for the Vancouver Recital Society. Jane Vile Jaffe. I'm not sure I said that right. I'm so sorry, Jane. Uh, who wrote program no- notes for the Parlance Chamber Concerts. And then Eric Bromberger, who wrote program notes for the La Jolla Music Society. So Beethoven was born on December 16th, 1770 in Bonn and died March 16th, 1827 in Vienna. Uh, This is his Piano Sonata in C-sharp minor, opus 27, number two. So it's actually a set of two 
sonatas. The other one is almost never performed. Sad um, day. <laughs> sad day. So um, in the music, it's actually, it's not written Moonlight Sonata. We'll get to that mm-hmm. in a second. It says Quasi Una Fantasia. Una Fantasia. Um, it, it was meant to be a fantasy. That's what mm-hmm. Beethoven was hoping for. Mm-hmm. I also saw it. Uh, the nickname Claire de Lune, which I thought was really interesting. Because, um, you know, Debussy isn't mm-hmm. the only one who's written a Claire de Lune. Mm-hmm. There are others. Um, and then I'll, I'll mention Debussy's Claire de Lune a little bit later in the notes. Um, this piece was written in 1801, and he was born in 1770. So he was about our age when he wrote this piece. That's crazy. Which I was actually pretty surprised, because I feel like a lot of Beethoven's, especially his piano works that are more well-known, he wrote when he was very young. Hmm. Or maybe that's Mozart. I went to music school. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, now that I think about it, Beethoven maybe didn't write so much when he was very young. Oh, well, I think they said this piece was written as he was going deaf, and it was like he was almost deaf when he wrote this. I don't think that's true. Okay. Because <laughs> um, he wrote the Third Symphony in 1803, and I, they're not talking really about his deafness until like kind of the eighth and ninth symphonies okay i don't know i don't remember that's just what i read but i didn't go to music school (laughs) (laughs) you can still go to music school and get things wrong so who knows (laughs) um so the nickname moonlight sonata actually didn't come from beethoven it Mm -hmm. came from the poet and critic ludwig ludwig relstab um oh I didn't understand what I wrote in my notes, but it's okay. Um, and it was actually named that five years after Beethoven died. So Beethoven never knew that this was called hmm. that. And in, I think it was Eric Bromberger's program notes, he, he has another funny quip that I'll bring up later. Um, but he said, Beethoven would have been just as surprised to have found out that he had a Moonlight Sonata as Mozart was to find out he had a Jupiter Symphony. Because hmm. like these things get named after the composers die. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know. I thought it was funny. Um, But Relstab thought the first movement sounded like a vision of a boat on Lake Lucerne by moonlight, Mm -hmm. which is where the name comes from. But that mood really only applies to the first movement. And Beethoven never even saw this lake. Um, And it was named after his death. And the piece was very popular and Beethoven hated that. So I think he would be really upset that it now has this very famous nickname mm-hmm. that is kind of after a lake that he's never even been to. Yeah. And um, he he said this of the piece, everybody is always talking about the C-sharp minor sonata. Surely I have written better things. Yep. And that's kind of how Debussy felt about his Claire de Lune uh, actually, Claire de Lune is just a movement of a bigger collection of pieces. Mm-hmm. But Debussy didn't really like Claire de Lune, so mm. don't write things that sound like a moon, I guess, if you're a composer. Everyone will love them, and you will hate it. <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot with just artists in general. Like, something that ends up being whatever the most popular thing they create is not their own most loved. Yeah, I suppose that's true. But Beethoven had such a great output that... I mean, like, sure, that was really popular in his time. Mm-hmm. Maybe his symphonies weren't as popular in the time because it was really expensive. It still is really expensive to put on a symphony concert, but mm-hmm. symphony concerts are different now, and I think it was easier to, you know, 
hire one pianist to play a bunch right. of stuff. <laughs> um, Here, play this stuff, pianist. <laughs> and we're going to sit and drink and listen. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this piece, Beethoven was really leaving traditional form. Um, C-sharp minor was kind of a weird key to write things in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mozart didn't write any piano pieces in C-sharp minor, and Haydn only wrote one. Hmm. And C-sharp minor actually sounds more intimidating than it is, but it's actually only four sharps. So if you're unfamiliar with the piano, any kind of sharps or flats that you have in the key signature mean that you have to play more black keys. So the keys without any sharps or flats, C major or A minor, are much easier to play in because you don't have to change position from lower on the key to higher on the keys. Um, So uh, all instruments are like this too. Like violinists start learning things in sharps because Mm -hmm. that just lays better on the instrument. So as soon as we have to start dealing with flats, people just pitch a fit and (laughs) don't want to do it. I'm not doing it. (laughs) And then um, woodwind and brass instruments are the opposite because it's easier for them to play in flat keys, Mm -hmm. keys with flats in the key signature. Mm -hmm. And um, as soon as you start, like, I feel like band kids get really comfortable with like three to four flats and then you throw in like a one sharp and they're like, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, it's happening. (laughs) What What do I do? (laughs) Um, So uh, one of, so he chose kind of a weird key for a piano Mm -hmm. piece. Um, And then all three movements are based on the key of C sharp, which is weird. Typically Mm -hmm. in a piece with multiple movements, you would kind of go through some sort of chord progression. Not all of the movements will be in the same key. Mm-hmm. Typically, in like for example, a four movement symphony, you would have the ti- uh, the key that's given in the title of the piece uh, will be the key of the first move. Am I making sense? Yes. I feel like I'm getting lost. Okay, so symphony in A major. The first movement will be an A major. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a bad example. Symphony in A minor. The first movement will be... I got this. The first movement will be an A minor. You'll get there eventually. <laughs> I will get there eventually. And then you'd usually... The second movement might be in like E something or maybe D something. And then you might have, I don't know, F sharp something for the third movement. Um, but then usually you'd go to the relative major key for the fourth movement. So you'd have a major at the very end. I actually don't know many symphonies that are in A minor. That was still a weird choice. Um, (laughs) But anyway, so all three of the movements in this sonata are based on C sharp. The first movement and the third movement are in C sharp minor. And then the second movement is in D flat major, which is enharmonic to C sharp. Mm -hmm. If you look at a piano, D flat and C sharp are the same black key. Yeah. So that's what enharmonic means. It's just a different spelling. That's your vocab word of the day. Yay. Woot woot. I don't know. I need a jingle for vocab words. Um, and the reason it's in D flat major is probably because it's easier to read than C sharp major. Mm-hmm. Not a lot because D flat major has five flats. Mm-hmm. C sharp major has seven sharps. So it's that's like too many sharps. It's far too many sharps. <laughs> well, that's, that's all the sharps. I know. I was like, that's all the sharps. <laughs> that's all the sharps. <laughs> Oh, a friend of mine, um, shout out Wendy. She's this really great um, violin teacher in St. Paul. During quarantine, she made a music video for how you can remember how many sharps go to each key and whatever, mm. and she uses parts of the violin. It's really cool. She's so creative. Um, I'm so glad to have her as a friend and mentor. But anyway, um, when you get... 
<laughs> she gets to the end and she's like, C sharp, all the sharps, all the sharps, all the sharps. <laughs> That's just what went through my head. So thanks, Wendy. Yep. Um, so anyway, it's weird for a piece to never modulate really within the movement. It modulates a little bit to different keys, but from movement to movement, it's the same general key area, which reminds me of Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. That whole darn thing mm-hmm. is D. Mm-hmm. D major, D minor. There's maybe like a bit of D Dorian in there, but it's all D. It doesn't travel at all. And it's still really exciting music. Yeah. Much longer than this piece, but yeah, exciting really, music. I was shocked at how short this whole piece was. I was like, oh, wow, I'm done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so the writing is free form. It's not really in typical sonata form. Um, the first movement, you, you know, you typically in a sonata form have an exposition where you hear one theme and then a development where you might hear the second theme and mm-hmm. then the composer plays around with how those two themes interact with each other. And then you come back to the recapitulation and you hear the first and second themes together in the home key. Yep. This first movement is really a meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, that actually made it hard to pick clips, okay. I found. Because one thing kind of rolls into the next. And actually, this would be a really nice piece to finish out a yoga um, shavasana with. It would. I think. Um, and also, this is atypical of a sonata. Usually the first movement is like your stormy, exciting, mm-hmm. big technique stuff. But Beethoven saved that for the third movement right. in this piece. Yes. Um, and I, oh man, the quote I have for that, I think is great. I hope you actually laugh at that one because <laughs> I, I giggled at the last one. <laughs> um, so just one more thing before we listen to the music. Um, we were talking about the dedication before Mm -hmm. we started recording we were you want to um i don't know if you'll be able to read my handwriting but do you want to talk about her a little bit (laughs) um it's right here okay so it was dedicated to countess julieta juciardi um people like to think this was a love song to her but he didn't even have her in mind i can't read the rest (laughs) (laughs) um yeah. So, oh, that's because I abbreviated a bunch of stuff. I'm sorry. I totally <laughs> put you on the spot there. So um, the press of the time liked to say that this was a love song to her. So typically it's thought that this piece was written for her. Uh, but he had actually dedicated his Rondo, Opus 51, number two, to her. But then this, I could have dived more into this, but I didn't. It's apparently dedicated to someone else, and she was like, sure, sure, let this person have it. And then he was like, well, you want this one? And she goes, okay. So that's how that happened. I think they did have a bit of a love affair, though. It's possible. Would you like to expand on that? Um, Okay, I I can't cite a source because I don't remember. (laughs) It was on the internet, not Wikipedia, Wikipedia. high school teachers. (laughs) Um, I know I read a couple of things on Classic FM, on their website and I don't know how accurate they are but they have good memes though he had taken her on as a pupil and she was I mean she's a countess so she's like high-born lady Mm -hmm. of the time and he did propose to her and she wanted to accept and I think her mother was like for it like wanted her to be happy because she loved him 
and her father said no because he's lowborn and has didn't have any prospects or whatever it is in those days. And also, he was grumpy AF. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why he was grumpy. <laughs> no, it was because his father beat him. Okay, well, that'll have something to do with it too. But yeah. um, she ended up marrying someone else who was like had a title of some sort, and. Um, it said they never really, um, like, were in contact or rekindled their friendship after that. It was Aww. just donezo. That's sad. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, let's listen. Let's go. <laughs> so this is the opening of the first movement, which I think most of you have probably heard. It's very common um, on, like, TV shows and... A lot of internet videos will use it, too. Maybe slower than I'm used to hearing it, uh, or maybe I just get excited about playing it. Um, but I think the reason this appears in music theory classes and in class piano is because, um, well, it's a little less demanding for the left hand, which I think is typically mm-hmm. people's weaker hand mm-hmm. until the end. So that's another reason it shows up is you do have to do some stuff. But also it's um, so arpeggiated chords. So instead yep. of playing do, 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 playing them all at the same time, which I cannot sing. (laughs) Um, That's an arpeggiation. You can really see how the chords work and gain an understanding of like only one note changes at a time. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing how that can change the entire mood of a chord. I just like, oh, it really gets me going. Yeah. I I love um, the melancholy kind of feel of it. And the fact that it's, when you're listening to it, it's, seems like it's a very simple piece but it's very complex as well yeah getting the emotions just right and then another thing is you have in the melody uh dotted so something that's divided into four you have against the triplets Mm -hmm. which is actually hard to play accurately Mm -hmm. it takes a lot of coordination yeah yeah so that's that and it Oh man, there are some really cool chord changes in there that I could have chosen more than just three segments. I was actually very tempted to play the whole thing, but it's like six minutes long and I thought that was maybe too much. Yeah. Plus I want all y'all listening to go discover this piece on your own if you haven't listened to it in its entirety. This one's great because it's, like I said, it's pretty short. So if you're like, oh, I don't want to listen to something that's 20 minutes long this whole thing or longer yeah (laughs) like this whole thing is overall like i think it's like 15 minutes with even less than that maybe um 
So it's funny that you started our conversation with talk about quarantine because while I was listening to this piece, I was thinking how each movement corresponds to a stage of quarantine. Oh boy. Okay. So this movement is what stage of quarantine? Stage one. Um, <laughs> Good. The first stage. Um, so this is like when they first announce like everything is getting shut down and you're kind of like, like, okay, wow, like I can't go anywhere. I can't see my friends. Everything is canceled. Like I had all these, like my friends' weddings or I had graduations coming up and now I can't do any of that and restaurants are closed and grocery stores are limiting hours and everything. It was all a very kind of scary thing. It was a big change for everybody. So this is like the stage when you're kind of just freaking out about the world and you're just sitting at home like wrapped in your blanket and you're binging Netflix because you just don't know what else to do. There could be a montage of that. I know. (laughs) With this piece behind it. And you're kind of just doing the same thing every day like you're staying up way too late, sleeping in, you're doing the um, daytime pajamas and nighttime pajamas. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And you know probably drinking a lot. Yeah, as some people did at the very beginning of quarantine. So that's that's this movement. That that's stage one of quarantine. All right. Well, shall we hear a little bit more of it? Yes. So I picked this part because there's, towards the end, a little bit more motion in the melody than there Mm -hmm. has been so far. And what I like about this is you have to use different fingers in the right hand to bring out those long notes. Because the higher notes are in the um, your ring finger and your little Mm -hmm. finger, fourth and fifth finger on the piano. And then, uh, which fourth finger on the piano is known as the weakest finger. Yep. Which doesn't make sense to me because on violin it's your little finger because it's littler than the rest of them. Whatever. Um, your ring finger is your weakest finger, though. Not in my world. Um, but then <laughs> the other. Um, That's why you're supposed to put on eye cream with your ring fingers. I know. I've always thought that was bogus because, like, I mean, maybe it's a violin thing, but my third finger, it's my third finger. My ring <laughs> finger. Is it, this, Good for you. <laughs> it's a topic for not this podcast. Okay. Um, but on piano, it's, I think because your fingers are doing more of the same thing and you're sitting more naturally in violin, you're very, is this pronated or the other one? Well, now I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. You're also twisting your arm in a really weird way, which I think, yeah. make, it, it's obviously it very different very, from the piano. Yeah. yeah, that does make sense. Yeah. So I've actually had to work really hard on, as most violinists do, on my fourth finger. My little finger. Um, But yeah, so then the lower notes are in, obviously, the lower range. So you're playing them with your thumb, which is, you know, it's short, but it has a lot more strength than the rest of the hand. So it's easier to bring those notes out, and you kind of have to compensate for the other, Mm -hmm. other notes. Yeah, and then it goes into this meditation thing where you're kind of going through... This chord progression, it's something that when I've played this piece, not that I've ever studied it very seriously, but it is something that, like, it's one of the pieces I'll take out and play when I sit down at the piano. Um, 
I never really understood it musically. Like, in the more emotional sense, it just doesn't... The next part doesn't do much for me. Okay. So I'm not going to play it. All right. <laughs> um, this last clip is from... Or from the first movement is from near the end of the piece where you finally have to play the melody in the left hand, which is, I think, is one of the coolest things in piano. So let's listen to that. always thought that part was really fun to play. It's a, a nice little challenge for the left hand. And then what the right hand is doing is from that meditation part that I don't understand and don't like <laughs> in this piece. Um, so it's just a lot more active than the rest of the piece because you can, for most of it, just leave your hands in one position and mm-hmm. play most of it. But you have to like, I don't, I don't know that they have a term for this in piano, but in violin, you'd call it shifting when you have to like move up and down the fingerboard. So I don't know if there's a term for that on the keyboard. I think maybe. <laughs> I don't think there is. Um, but one of my favorite parts is the leading tone, the B sharp into the C sharp, where at the very end of the little phraselet, you hear do, 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 do. So you kind of like, you want to go up to tonic, the C sharp, the name of the key. Um, but there's a little bit more motion after it that makes mm-hmm. it, it just... It has this really weird, cool flavor. I just love that part. And then there are no surprises in this movement. It ends Mm -hmm. as you would expect, quietly, somberly, melancholy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just love it. (laughs) It is a really nice piece. Yeah. Uh, So for a total shift in mood... Would you like to talk about how the second movement relates to quarantine first, or would you like <laughs> Let's to... Let's hear the first clip, and then we'll talk about it, so we can kind of have know what we're getting into. Okay. Actually, I chose really short clips, so uh, maybe... That's okay. Just a little, just a little taste. Let's do both clips, and then you can say... Okay. Okay. So that's the very opening of this movement. Uh, you could call it a minuet and trio. It has a first part and then the trio, and then you go back to the first part for the very end. So here's a clip from the trio. And it goes on like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a different mood mm-hmm. than D- very different the first movement. So how, what stage of quarantine is this? Is it the second stage? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is stage two of quarantine. So you've you've gotten past the depression of stage one. Um, you're kind of getting used to this change and getting used to being at home, and you're kind of getting to the point where you're like, well, hey, being at home is kind of okay, and. Um, 
I have all this free time. I can I can do all these things that I've always wanted to do. And so this is the stage where you're thinking about all those different things. Like, oh my gosh, I've wanted to do this forever. I've also wanted to do that. And what do I need to do? What do I need to order off of Amazon to get delivered to my house before I can do that? Should I bake bread? Let me look up some recipes. <laughs> like, so that's the kind of the, the planning stages of what projects can I do during quarantine or how can I work on myself or how can I make the most of this time that I have. That just reminded me, if this movement was a person, I think it would be Marie Kondo because it's like perky, mm-hmm. put together. It's interesting, but simple enough. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, we all needed Marie Kondo way more than we ever <laughs> did before during quarantine. For sure. <laughs> um, and also listening to this movement, it kind of seems like maybe a composition exercise. Mm-hmm. So I guess I can see why Beethoven's like, really? This is what you want to talk about of things I've written? Yeah. So, yeah, it was when I finally listened to this that I was like, yeah, I mean, you wrote a lot more interesting stuff. For sure. Than this. Um, Okay. So here's the quote from Eric Bromberger. And then we'll hear the opening of the third movement. Yay. Nothing in this sonata to this point prepares one for the finale, Mm -hmm. which rips to life with a searing energy far removed from the dreamy atmosphere of the opening movement. It's just so cool. It really is. I would love to hear the first movement and the third movement like overlaid on top of each other. That would be interesting. Maybe we can try that at the end. (laughs) See how it goes. Uh, If it goes well, maybe it'll be part of the opening. (laughs) Um, But I was actually just thinking that this is maybe a more... The title of the movement is Presto Agitato. And, which means fast and aggravated. Was that Mosey? No, NATO. NATO. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might hear some Wookiee sounds. Don't worry. It's oh, just it my dog. <laughs> my dog who is part Wookiee. <laughs> um, so I was just thinking as I remem- remembered how this clip goes before I started playing it. There's a brighter, more energetic version of this in one of Beethoven's piano concertos in the third movement. I think it's it's maybe his third piano concerto, the It just kinda reminded me of that. It's like the same sort of material, but like a very different mood. Yeah. I'll stop. But I'll listen to it on my way home. Um so what stage of quarantine is this movement? The third stage? Yep. You got it. Yay! Um, so the third stage, so this is when you are just like going crazy with all your new projects. You're just doing all the things. Because um, I definitely had days where I would like, literally, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to do some laundry. And then I'm going to bake bread. And then I'm going to knit for a while. And then I'm going to watch a Disney movie. And then I'm going to do this. And then, uh, uh, so that's how it's just very energetic. And you're just like, yes, yes, yes. Doing all the things. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. I, I was thinking this could be the reopening because, like, today 
I got, I spent a lot more time on the interstate than I have recently. Mm -hmm. And it's scary out there. (laughs) It's like everyone forgot how to drive, including me. Um, Also, I'm scared of driving in general. But yeah, it's just kind of like back to the like rat race, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like that's like the next piece and because that's gonna have a whole bunch of its own movements i mean it would have to i yeah. suppose because 2020 <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone would like to submit a piano work called moonlight sonata continues in 2020 <laughs> no don't do that <laughs> or don't call it that you can call it something better anyway i have one last clip of this piece And this is a part where I think the third movement is reminiscent of the first movement. So let's listen to that. It's so cool. I wish I didn't have to stop it there, but then it goes on into something else. And there's a lot of cool moments in this movement definitely take a listen to the whole thing but mm-hmm. that part reminded me of um but obviously more decorated yeah. than before and what i think is really cool is there's triplets happening in the left hand mm-hmm. in the first movement but then there's um 16th notes happening outside of this melody in the fourth movement and it reminded me a little bit of chopin's fantasy impromptu where it's four against three for the whole, so you have sixteenth notes, da 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 da, da and then one two three, one two three. So I don't know if that picks up on the mic, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so and then at the end of Fantasy Impromptu, once you hear um, the crazy beginning again, it goes into two against four, which should sound like very square and normal, but after hearing three against four. It just sounds crazy pants. <laughs> it's such a cool piece. Um, actually, I should do a podcast episode about that one, too. But anyway, any closing thoughts about this piece? No, I'm glad we talked about it because I think, like I said, it's one that's great if you don't listen to a ton of classical music. One, you'll definitely recognize the first movement from something. Mm-hmm. You probably won't know what. <laughs> you'll be like, where do I know this At least from? like 12 things. Um and it's not super long, so you're not, you know, getting way too invested, but, like, it's Beethoven, and it's great, so. <laughs> Beethoven is is great. I guess that's that. Thanks that's for listening. It. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for or having guess, me again. Thanks for having me at your house to be on my podcast. Yes! <laughs> um, and if you liked this, check out the other episodes. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can actually subscribe on Spotify. Also, the podcast is available on Google Play, but I don't use it, so maybe you can subscribe there. I don't know. Um, You can subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Well, you can't, because we're not on Stitcher. We're not on Stitcher, but other places that you can find podcasts. Possibly. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know all the places, but those three for sure. Um, Uh, On iTunes, it's helpful to leave a five-star review that helps other people find the podcast. You can share the podcast with a friend. You can write a review in iTunes. That's super helpful, and I would love to read them. Um, If you would like to contribute monetarily to the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash poormeamozart and become a subscriber for $3 a month or 
more dollars a month if you choose. Um, no limit on the amount of dollars yeah, that you want to give. <laughs> give me, a, like, more zeros at the end of that would be just great. Um, and you can follow the podcast at Pouring Me Mozart on Instagram and Facebook. And I believe that's all the things. All the things. Well, thanks again, Brianne. Thank you. And cheers. Cheers. Bud. <laughs>